Well, my grandfather was a Lutheran pastor, but he died before I was born. So I never got to meet him, but I'm the youngest of all of his grandchildren. And so I grew up with his uh, legacy behind me. And people would ask me growing up, do you want to be a pastor like your grandfather? And I would give a resounding no. I would say, why do I want to bore people for a living as my job? And since then, I've found the joy in boring people for a living. And you get to be the beneficiaries of my boring you. So you're welcome. Um, something changed, though, when I turned 17 years old. Uh, I was on a youth trip to Georgia. We were on a service trip, and we were taking communion. And something just shifted for me. I'm not sure I really understand what happened. All I know is we were in a school gymnasium and on the bleachers, and I walked down to take communion. When I went down to take communion, I didn't want to be a pastor. And when I came back up after communion, I did want to be a pastor. Somehow, God had called me in that moment. But as I started preparing for college and kind of figuring out the rest of my life, I had my heart set on Stanford. I was living in Texas, and the idea of Going to school in California was this mythical dream. And so I ended up getting in. And, and somehow, for some reason, I felt like if I attended Stanford, I should work in the professional world first before going into full-time ministry. Not sure why God put that on my heart, but he did. And so that's what I ended up doing. I worked for Oracle Corporation for seven years as a product manager uh, before then starting on as a pastor here at PBC almost 17 years ago now. It's been interesting for me to reflect back on that season and how God led me because of some of the new things God is kind of showing me the last few years and some of the new directions that he's leading me. And I think that'll become clear as we go through this sermon, how you'll see some of those dots connecting. We're in a series called Witness, going through the book of Acts, just looking at the sermons in the book of Acts. And what we've been trying to see is how each of these sermons features some unique individual speaking to a unique context with the same gospel message. But it's always different how they choose to communicate it because they're trying to make the gospel fit, true, relevant, make it apply to the people that they're speaking to. And so we've been trying to think about how that works for us. Recently, we've heard Scott share about the inspiration of Stephen's martyrdom, we heard Cormac share about the inclusion of the gospel, how everybody has a seat at the table. Last week, we heard Paco talk about the courage to go ahead and share the complete gospel. And this week, we get to the sermon in Acts 17, which is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. I'm convinced that a lot of us who know Jesus, who have experienced the life of faith, have a deep desire for others to know that faith. We want people to know the life of Jesus. But talking about Jesus and the gospel is so challenging in our culture. It feels like either it's irrelevant or people get mad if you talk about Jesus or faith just doesn't make sense. And so we have this feeling that we want desperately for others to know the life that comes from Christ. And yet we don't know how to talk about it. And this sermon in Acts is a masterclass in how Paul manages to take 
the message of the gospel and deliver it to an elite, educated crowd in a way that resonates with them. So as we study this passage, what we're going to do is first we're going to look at the strategy that Paul uses in order to communicate to his context. We're going to identify that strategy at kind of a high level, and then we're going to look at how he takes that strategy and applies it within his context, first century Athens. Finally, we're going to look at our context, and we're going to ask what it might look like for us to take that same strategy and apply it within our world, 21st century Silicon Valley. So we'll identify the strategy, we'll see it applied in Athens, and then we'll try to apply it to our world with a particular emphasis on the culture of work in the Bay Area. My hope this morning is that we'll see how the way that people think about work in the Bay Area is an incredible opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ to open up a fuller and richer life for people who live here. Before we start looking in it, I want to read the whole passage all at once. We don't usually do it this way. We're not going to project it on the screens because I want you to listen to how it might have been received. So I want you to pull out your imaginary togas, all right? Did you bring those with you? Put them on. Imagine you're sitting in first century Athens, the Areopagus. That would have been a big open public square, and this Jew from Tarsus comes, and he wants to deliver this message, and you're sitting there. You're maybe a philosopher. You're an educated elite, and you're listening to the Apostle Paul give this sermon. You ready? All right. This is Acts 17. I'll read the whole sermon. This is verses 22 through 30. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given 
assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, you can take off your togas now. We're back here. That's the sermon. That's Paul addressing his people in Athens. So in order to really understand what's going on, we need to back up a little bit to understand the context and see why he chose this particular strategy to address them. We're going to go back and we're going to read from the few verses prior, verses 16 to 18 in Acts 17. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, what I want us to notice is a few things. Notice that Paul recognized that the city was full of idols. This was a religious city. But then he proceeded to go into three main cultural centers within that city. He went to the synagogue, and he spoke with religious people. He went to the marketplace, and he spoke with professional people. And then he went eventually to the Areopagus, and he spoke with the philosophers or the academic people in our world. He identified each of those areas as places where the gospel could take root. Now, this was critical because Athens was an economic hub, it was, an, it was a, a religious hub, and it was an academic hub. If Rome was the political power of the day, Athens was the brain power. This is where thoughts turned into action. Sound a bit familiar at all? Silicon Valley, anyone? So if the Apostle Paul came here, he'd probably go to the churches and the synagogues and the self-realization centers and all those kinds of places where people become spiritual. He would go to the workplaces, Google and Apple and Meta and all the others that are around here. And he would go to the academic institutions, to Stanford and San Jose State and De Anza and Foothill and Santa Clara and all the schools and places of learning up and down the peninsula. In other words, the Apostle Paul would go to all of the places that all of you go on Monday mornings. But he doesn't have to go there because you're already going there. You're already going into the economic centers and the academic centers and the religious centers, the neighborhoods, the schools. You're going to those places of cultural influence because that's where you live. That's where God has called you to be. Having gone there, the Apostle Paul uses a particular strategy to represent the gospel in those places. And I want to summarize that strategy with three words. Identify, affirm, and invite. The first thing he does is he identifies what it is in those places that people care about. What drives them? What do they wrap their lives around? Or in religious terms, what do they worship? First, he identifies that. Then, and this is where it gets a little surprising, he affirms what they care about. He doesn't correct their idolatry immediately. We're going to see this. 
Instead, he affirms something good, something beautiful. See, people don't worship something that doesn't have a kernel of goodness, of beauty. God created all of these things, and people worship something that's good and make it the only thing. So he affirms the goodness, and then he takes what's lacking in that worship. He takes what's missing, and he uses that as an invitation for the gospel to show forward. He takes the failures of the idol and makes that into something where God shines forth. He identifies what people care about, he affirms the goodness, but then he corrects what they're missing and he invites them to experience more through the gospel. This is Paul's strategy. And uh, we can see how this is expressed in this book called The Wisdom of Solomon. This is um, a book, a Jewish writing from the first century before Christ. Listen to how this person says it. It says, if through delight in the beauty of these things, people assumed them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord. For the author of beauty created them. See, Paul says, you find the things that people worship and you introduce them to the one who made what they idolize. See, idolatry is common in Athens and it's common everywhere because all idolatry is, is when you take a good thing, something good that God has created, and you make it the only thing. You wrap your entire life around it. Idolatry happens when you look to get your needs met from something that's incapable of meeting those needs. So in the first century, they did this with statues. They'd build a statue and they'd say, this statue is going to make me fertile, which of course, it couldn't. Or this statue is going to guarantee me success in war or guarantee that my crops are plentiful. They're looking to meet their needs from something that's incapable of doing so. Of course, we do this, usually not with statues, but with things in our lives. Our, our education is going to meet our needs. Our, our spouses are going to meet our every need. Our, our children, our parents, sex, money, our reputation, whatever it is, this thing that is ultimately good, we elevate to be the source where all of our needs are met. But here's the good thing about idolatry. That's not a sentence you thought you'd hear in church, right? Here's the good thing about idolatry. Idolatry always fails. Idolatry always disappoints us. Because when we expect something to meet our needs that is incapable of doing so, we inevitably get to a place where we realize that we're missing out, that something's broken. And that's the place, the gap, the sense of brokenness, of hopes that go unmet. That's the place where Paul's strategy kicks in and he says, out of that, the gospel speaks forth the truth of who God is, enters into that place of brokenness and offers life and hope and peace. So that's the strategy Paul uses. Identify, affirm, invite. He goes to people, he finds out what they think is beautiful, what they care about, and he uses that as an inroads to introduce them to the author of beauty. 
So if that's what he does, let's see how he applies that strategy in first century Athens. How does he enter into Athens and use that? Well, first, we've already seen how he goes into the city and he recognizes that they are very religious. But it really takes a, a focal point when he finds this unknown God. I want to read again verse 23. It says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So notice that the apostle goes to the city, he learns about the culture, but he doesn't just learn anything about the culture. He's looking for something specific. He's trying to figure out what they worship. He doesn't care about what clothes they wear, about what music they listen to, what they do. He wants to know what is that thing that drives their lives? What do they idolize? And he finds this statue built to the unknown God. So having identified this worship that they have, then he does the surprising thing. Then he affirms their worship. Notice what he says at the end of verse 23. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now you've probably heard this verse before, some of you have, but I'm not sure you've really realized how radical this verse is. Paul is a first century Jew, trained as a rabbi. For him, idolatry is the worst thing ever. Idolatry was the bane of God's people's existence all throughout the Old Testament. The worst thing you could do was to worship an idol. So Paul comes into Athens, into a, into a polytheistic culture, and he says, that thing that you worship, keep worshiping it. But let me tell you who it actually is. See, he doesn't start by saying, you silly people, why are you worshiping some stone idol? Don't you know that that's not God? Don't you know? Why would you do that? He doesn't begin by criticizing them. He begins by affirming their worship. And that would have been revolutionary for him. He quotes their poets, Greek polytheistic poets, affirming their ideas. And when he does so, he doesn't quote poetry about love or war or family. He quotes poetry about worship, about the nature of what it means to be human. All throughout his speech, he's, he's demonstrating that he knows how they think. He affirms the goodness in what they worship. But he doesn't leave them there. He doesn't just stop. He uses that as a platform to then say, but you don't have the whole picture. I'm not going to criticize your idolatry, but let me fill in the gaps. Let me tell you who it is you're actually worshiping. And throughout his sermon, he uses these certain points of God's character, and he corrects what they think with what is actually true. And so we hear him saying things like, God does not live in temples made by man. He is actually not far from each one of us. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. See, in each of these, he uses the reference point of what they think about God 
And he's drawing them forward to correct their vision, to give them a fuller picture of who God is. But he doesn't just want to change their mind. He wants them to make a radical change in their life. Listen to what he says in verse 30 to 31. He says, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this day he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. We've seen this several times before in the book of Acts. It always leads to repentance. It always leads to turning from one thing to another thing. And that's a dramatic change. That is an important, critical decision for people to make, to turn their allegiance from that thing that they worship, which is insufficient to meet their needs, to turn their faith toward Jesus Christ. The apostle isn't afraid to speak of judgment. He says, there will come a day when Jesus will return and set things right. This world will be returned to the way it is meant to be. And now is your opportunity to get in line with the one who will do that, to put your faith in the one who can meet your needs. So Paul, in first century Athens, identifies these idols that they worship. He affirms that there's something good and true about them, but then he invites them, based on what's lacking, to fill in the picture, repent, and turn to Jesus. So that's his strategy in the first century, Let's now think about what our strategy might be. How would we take Paul's method and apply it to the world we live in? Well, if we want to say, what do people idolize today? We could list 100 things. There's no end of topics that people worship in our culture. But I think it's fair to say one thing that's unique about the Bay Area is the culture of work around here. I've quoted this before, but seven of the 10 largest United States technology companies are headquartered within 10 miles of our address in Palo Alto. And if you ask people, what do they love? What brings them to the Bay Area? What do they wrap their lives around? What do they care about in the Bay Area? I guarantee you work is at the top of the list. In fact, I don't think people just love their jobs in the Bay Area. I think people look to their jobs to meet all of their needs. That's what we've called idolatry. This is the point that an author named Carolyn Chen makes. She's a sociologist from Berkeley. She wrote a book called Work, Pray, Code. And uh, this is one of her observations. She says, in American society today, there is no single institution that so faithfully aspires to meet the material social, and spiritual needs of its members as work does for its highly skilled workers. You hear what she's saying there? Not only do people look to work to meet their needs, but our companies, our corporate cultures are designed to meet all the needs of their employees. So she concludes, tech workers are worshiping work because work has become worthy of worship. Wow. So if we're going to follow Paul's strategy and say, what is it that people 
idolize here, we could do worse than concluding work. People in Silicon Valley worship work. If we move on to the next step then and say affirmation, there's actually a lot that we can affirm about that idolatry. We can affirm the goodness and beauty and God-given nature of work. And I think this is sometimes a place, at least in church culture, where we don't always know how to talk about it. Because on the one hand, we live in a culture where people worship work and they wrap their lives around it. And so a lot of people, in an effort to avoid that, swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and minimize work. I've heard lots of Christians say, it's just a job. It's just a paycheck. It, it doesn't matter to me. It's not my identity. It's just something I have to do because I need to pay the bills. But the problem is that neither of those extremes really captures the biblical revelation of how work is supposed to function in our lives. We don't have time this morning to develop a, a full theology of work, but let me at least bring us back to Genesis and look at the creation account to see one little nugget of how we were created to function. If you go back to Genesis, we're going to go read in Genesis 2, and we're going to read just a summary account of how God created people. It starts off with a problem. This is Genesis 2.5. There was no man to work the ground. The background to this is that God had created a garden, um, and gardens need gardeners. But Genesis 2.5, there's a problem. There's no man to work the ground. So Genesis 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So God created humanity. And then in verse 15, we read, finally, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So high-level summary of Genesis 2, account of creation, is that God created a garden without a gardener. Therefore, he created a man, gave him a job as a gardener. And if you were to ask the question, just based on this story, why did people become into existence? Why did God create us? Because he had a garden that needed to be taken care of. That's it. Or, to summarize, because work needed to be done. The world needed something to be done to cultivate, to develop it, to generate it. So in some sense in this story, we were created to work. Now, as you read the whole biblical picture, it's fuller than that. It's bigger than that. It has to do with imaging God and who he is in the world. And there's a lot of nuance to that. But the fact remains that we were given a God-centered desire within us to contribute to the world. And we are meant to flourish as we're living that out. Keep in mind that when we're talking about work here, we're not just talking about what you do to get a paycheck. It might be retirement, it might be volunteering, it might be raising children, it might be any host of things. But that sense that God has given us something to do to fulfill in this world is beautiful and good. And so when we encounter people in our culture who worship work, we can respond and say, makes sense. There's a lot of good and beauty and power in our work. 
This is part of the goal we have in the new track of our Leadership Institute that we piloted last year. We're, we're still accepting applications for the fall cohort right now. It's all about understanding how we live out our faith in the workplace. How does God work in us in the workplace? How does God work through us to the people we work with? And how does God actually use the work we do to contribute to his purposes in the world? We're basically asking three questions. What should we do? How do we know what job to take and how to work and what, what kinds of things we should be doing? That, that's the question of calling. How do we find our calling? And then we ask, well, how should we do it? What does it look like to follow Jesus as a teacher, as a gardener, as a tech worker, as a, as a full-time mom, as a full-time dad, as a retired person? What does it look like to follow Jesus in our work? That's discipleship. And then finally, there's a question of why do we do this? What is it that God's doing in the world through us? That's the question of impact. How is it that our meager efforts contribute to God's work? Calling, discipleship, and impact. That's what we're trying to unpack. It's a nine-month program. Um, we are still, we've extended the deadline. You can apply through the end of the week, and we're having a lunch right after this service if you want to find out more about that. But personally, I've seen how this is the thread that God is weaving back into my life and helping me to see how God works through our workplace, partly because of this strategy that Paul uses in this passage. Because we talk a lot about what, what is it going to take? How do we proclaim the gospel faithfully in the Bay Area, in this place? And I am absolutely convinced that if we don't address the topic of work, the gospel is going to fall flat. I say it sometimes this way, a faith that doesn't make sense of work doesn't make sense in the Bay Area. We have to understand how the life that Jesus calls us to is lived out, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week. So this is what Paul does. He, he affirms the goodness of what people worship. But again, he doesn't stop there. He moves on to the final step. And this is true in our culture as well. Because as much as people love their jobs, as much as they wrap their lives around what they do, our jobs always disappoint us. Work always fails to meet all of our needs. Our workplaces become places of injustice and hurt. We encounter um, failures, judgment, lack of forgiveness, ambition, pointlessness, futility, our workplaces are broken, sometimes dark, sometimes desperate. But the good news, literally the gospel, is that in each and every one of those places where work fails us, Jesus enters and offers redemption. Because our God is a God of justice. He's a God of meaning and purpose. He's a God of forgiveness and reconciliation and rest and peace and productivity and all of those things. And so wherever it is that the worship of work doesn't quite meet people's expectations, that becomes an opportunity for the gospel to be made known. And we can, at the right time, in the right ways, invite people to turn, to repent, to change their lives from expecting too much of their workplace to expecting everything from Jesus Christ.
That's the gospel. That's how we might apply Paul's strategy to where we live in our context today. I started off by sharing how God led me um, to work in the professional field before becoming a pastor. And to be honest, part of me thought going into it that I would uh, go into the workplace, I would figure out the right way to be a Christian in the workplace, and then I would graduate, become a pastor, and tell everybody else how to do it, uh, which is pretty much how it's played out in my life. Um, I'm sure you can agree, right? No. Of course, it's way more complex than that. And if anything, those years of working, God gave me a deep sense of the complexity and the need to follow the Spirit and to learn and to grow and learn from others. And that's what it is that we're doing here together. We're trying to walk faithfully to understand how it is that the gospel permeates every minute of our day, every aspect of our life. We've talked about this strategy that the Apostle Paul uses, and I want to invite you to think about the places that you go, the places that you find yourself. Where do you go on a Monday morning? Where do you spend your weeks? Where do you spend your time? What is it that your life involves? And how might you take this strategy? How might you say, what do people care about? What's good about that? And what's missing? And how can that be an invitation to more? Identify, affirm, and invite. That's the strategy we've seen Paul employing. And we've seen how we might do that in the context of our work. As Christians, as Jesus followers, develop this robust sense of vocation, a sense of calling that, that encompasses our whole lives, not just our jobs, but everything we do, as we develop that sense of calling, it becomes a witness to who God is. Even people that don't believe in God, they speak of having a calling, which is always a bit curious to me because how can you have a calling without a caller? You need a caller who's calling you to your calling. So as we develop this biblically informed sense of calling that encompasses our whole lives, we put God on display for the world. As we find those things that are beautiful in our work, they become a chance to introduce people to the author of beauty. We're going to continue now in worship, and we're going to sing a song first called Build My Life that begins by focusing on God's worthiness. That's what we've been talking about, how only Jesus, only Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. And having affirmed that, then we're going to shift into praying through worship that our lives would be built on that truth the worthiness of Jesus, the worthiness of God, such that we could reflect that to the world. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this beautiful picture of what it looks like to communicate the truth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel to a particular culture. Uh, we are here. You've put us in this place, in this time, and we want to be faithful to your calling on us to help us to understand how we might make the gospel um, shine forth in the Bay Area. Help us to speak well, to not be afraid, to, to show who you are to people who desperately need to know that. 
We can't do it without you. It's too big, it's too complicated, but, but we trust that your spirit is in us. Your spirit is sending us. Your spirit is walking with us. So help us just to rely on you. It's your kingdom, it's your glory, it's your power. Help us to rest in that. Be faithful to how it is that you're leading us forth. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.